0: And our first reading comes from 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And our second readings from Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is the word of the Lord.
1: G'day. My name's Rob Forsyth, and uh, I'm also part of the team here at uh, Church Hill Anglican. But I'm normally the other end of the day. I'm the 8:30 um, Book of Common Prayer Holy Communion, old-fashioned, or as I call it, proper church. <laughs> it's great to be here there tonight and share with you from God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, may Your Word live in us and bear much fruit to Your glory. Amen. Well, we're moving. Um, towards the conclusion of that remarkable teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and in today's section, we hear uh, not so much new teaching from Jesus, but warning to take the teaching he's already given seriously. It's quite confronting. As you as we've been listening to the Sermon on the Mount, we've been hearing Jesus urging his, his hearers. To live lives wholeheartedly oriented towards God and his deep goodness. To live a life wholeheartedly oriented towards God and his deep goodness. And reflect that in how you live. That's all well and good. But in these words that follow his main teaching are disconcerting, even alarming. In chapter 7, 13 to 23, three times, Jesus sets out two clear alternatives, black, as white as they can be, leading to death or life. Yet in every case he warns that appearances can be very deceptive. Three things, black and white, life and death, but they're never quite as they look. The stakes couldn't be any higher And yet the right way isn't obvious, at least at first look. And these words of Jesus raise also a number of issues, but I'm going to deal at the end with a theological question that they raise for us and a practical question as well. Here's the first one of those clear alternatives that are black and white where appearances are deceptive. Verse 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Oh dear, that's not very encouraging, is it? The way that looks to be the way to life, the broad, broad, wide gate and broad road with many on it, turns out to be the way that leads to destruction. On the other hand, it is that which you might overlook, not even find, the small gate and the narrow road, with very few on it, that leads to life. Not obvious. What do these words mean, though, in the context of Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount? Put simply, what they mean is this. To live as Jesus teaches is neither obvious nor common. Neither obvious nor common. Instead, it is much more obvious and much more common to live the way in which are like those whom Jesus calls in his sermon the hypocrites. That is, those who have mere outward behaviour and not the inner wholeness he has been calling for. And the consequences are severe. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Narrow the road that leads to life. Now, this really captures our attention. Enter by the narrow gate. Pay attention, he's saying, to these words, to this teaching. Be intentional. The way to life is not obvious. Pay attention to what I've been saying. And that idea is developed further in the next two sections in verse 15 and following and verse 21 and following. Next, verse 15 and following, there are the fake prophets. Quote, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you'll recognise them. Prophets are those who come speaking on behalf of God, These seem okay, but they're false, destructive wolves hidden in the outward appearance of sheep. And the other section from verse 21, or is it perhaps unpacking further the section on fake prophets, concerns fake disciples. I quote, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven Now, the alarming thing is that all these are identified with Jesus. The false prophets are clothed as sheep, that is, disciples. Those whom Jesus never knew, nonetheless had in his name prophesied, in his name driven out demons, in his name's done many mighty deeds, miracles. Those who do not enter the kingdom of heaven are among those who say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. What's gone wrong? What makes all the difference between real and fake? Between real sheep and fake wolf ones? Between those who enter the kingdom of heaven and those who do not? Between those whom Jesus knew and those whom he never knew? It can all be summed up in one word, doing it's the doing that makes the difference the doing makes the difference that's what makes a real disciple or a real prophet it's clearest in verse 21 where Jesus says and I quote not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven See, saying is not enough Only those who do will enter the kingdom of heaven. But this also applies to the earlier words about the fake prophets. Jesus said of them in verse 16, by their fruit you will recognise them. What does he mean? Well, you see a plant, you don't don't know what it is. What is this bush? What is this plant? It's only when it produces something, you ah, that's what it is. You recognise it by the fruit it bears. Jesus adds, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And so as he puts it in verse 17, likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and every bad tree bears bad fruit. Interestingly, in the NIV English translation that we're using, uh, the Greek word do is hidden where it's often translated by another word. All that talk about fruit coming from various trees in verses 17 to 19 literally uses the word do, although quite properly it's translated bear in English. But if you read verse 17 and following literally, it would read, and I quote, every good tree does good fruit. Every bad tree does bad fruit. A good tree cannot do bad fruit and a bad tree cannot do good fruit. Every tree that does not do good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It is indeed the doing that does it. Not just the hearing, not just the saying, Lord, Lord, not the prophecy and miracles and deliverances in his name, the doing, that's what does it. That's what shows what kind of tree it is. The doing exposes the truth about a person deep down. the doing of what jesus jesus is quite clear here what he says in verse 21 not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven do the will of my father who is in heaven that's what although very importantly just a little later he puts it another way in the words that follow our given text tonight which we'll have next week this is what Jesus says therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock verse 26 everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, next week, Rowan will let you know what happened to these wise and foolish builders. Just let me say today that it doesn't turn out well for one of them. But all we need to know now is the phrase, do these words of mine, is parallel to, do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Which, when you think about it, is remarkably claimed to authority from Jesus and of course these words of mine which are the will of my father in heaven are nothing other than the words we've been studying in the last month or two or so the words of Jesus in what we call the Sermon on the Mount those are the words of mine the will of my father in heaven which, of which the doing makes the difference and we've heard Jesus speaking to us in his powerful, imaginative, and forceful language about living lives wholeheartedly oriented towards God and his deep goodness. That's the doing that makes the difference. And Jesus spells out in different facets in his teaching. He is not asking impossible perfection, but he's asking for a person to really be devoted to their Father in heaven from the heart and let that show in their lives. That's the good fruit which a good tree does and by which the good tree is recognised. Without that, you have fake prophets. Without that, no matter how spectacular their spiritual powers in the name of Jesus, they're unrecognised by Jesus. Without that, calling Lord, Lord doesn't do a thing to enable them to enter the kingdom of heaven. This is pretty clear. Alarming, yes, but pretty clear. And it may raise a number of questions in your mind. I've, thought, I've got two of them to answer. The first, the theological question. You may be wondering, How this emphasis on all the doing fits with the teaching that we're saved by God's grace through faith and not because of our desert or worthiness. We are taught it was Jesus' doing on the cross and in his resurrection that enables us to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why then does Jesus teach it's our doing that makes the difference? Well, it's helpful to notice as we start that elsewhere in the New Testament, we find the same thing as Jesus says, but in different language. For example, in the letter of James, which, by the way, has a very close feel in the language to the Sermon on the Mount, and is likely written, in fact, by Jesus' brother from the same background, interesting. This is what we find in verse 22 of chapter one. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And later Jane made clear in chapter 2 of his letter that without the doing, believing, faith is not faith, it's dead. Faith apart from works is useless, is the way he puts it, pointless, empty. Paul, the Apostle Paul, um, in very different language. Nonetheless, there's similar things. For example, in Ephesians chapter 2, a marvelous chapter, where the apostle emphasizes the free gift of salvation. But it's a free gift with not without obligations. Paul stresses that his readers have been saved, as he puts it, by grace through faith. And that is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. And not because of works lest anyone should boast. Couldn't be clearer. Yet the very next sentence he says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Literally, by the way, it's lovely, advance for us to walk in. the idea of a path he's laid before us of a way of life to do. So he's saying, You're not saved by works, but for works. The doing is an essential part of the package. In fact, Paul can even write about a future judgment by Christ of believers, of what we have done. This was the first of the two readings, in fact. Verse nine, we make it our goal to please him, that's the Lord, whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, I don't want to give the impression that Jesus is only to be believed if Paul or James agrees with him. And I don't ignore the very different language and framework that each brings at this point. But there is deep agreement here. This is a common teaching. And the reason it's common is because of what free gift means in the New Testament world. The modern Western idea that of the pure gift, which is supposedly given with no strings attached, is not that of the ancient world or the New Testament. Instead, in that world, a free gift nonetheless creates obligations to the one who receives it. It may be given freely without regard of the worthiness of the recipient, and that's the great wonderful message of grace in Christ. Not given to those who deserve it or those who are unworthy, but it's never given unconditionally. That is, free of expectations of who receive it, some return. Unconditioned, given freely, but not unconditional, creates obligations. I've thought of an example in in life elsewhere where this is is blatantly true. Here's here's an example of a gift which is unconditioned, but not unconditional, when you get a free gift of a puppy for Christmas. Right? You get it freely, but it creates obligations. (laughs) What obligations they are too, right? Well, I I, I don't trivialise, but that is in fact what the gift of grace is in Christ. gift but plenty of obligations. The University of Durham Professor John Barclay writes and this is in the in the order of service, what seemed in the modern world a paradoxical phenomenon that a free gift can also be obliging is entirely comprehensible in ancient terms. And that's why Jesus teaches that while the doing does not earn you the kingdom God's gift in His Son does that. Unless you do, that is, unless you do more than merely hear His words but put them into practice, you will not inherit the kingdom. A whole person, wholehearted devotion to God, lived out in practice, is doing His words. Just saying, Lord, Lord, doesn't cut it. Even performing miracles in His name doesn't cut it. Certainly, hearing Jesus. And doing nothing else doesn't cut it. Actually, we don't need Professor Barclay. It was there in the teaching of our church all along. In the zine, I put in my second quote the Article 12 of the 39 articles, which are an ancient um, 17th century, 16th century, I should say, writing, in which our church, the Anglican Church of Australia, in our constitution gives a very special place, second only to sacred scripture. Article 12 is on good works. I'll read it. A, be it that good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith the word lively, by the way, means living. That's, the, that, that's what the word, it's an archaic phrase for us. True and living faith, inasmuch as by them a living faith may be inevitably known as a tree discerned by the fruit. This leads to the second practical question. That was a the theological question, now the more practical question. You may be asking yourself, How much doing is enough? Where do I draw the line? Let me warn you about that question. There is a place for that question. In fact, Jesus is trying to wake us up with these words to ask the question of ourselves my goodness, am I a mere hearer? Or do I do? But it can sometimes, in the wrong context, be the wrong question. Because Jesus speaks, as ever, in extreme language, black, white. You're either this or that. Do the will of the Father or not. But our problem is being aware of our own mixed motives, our forgetfulness, our failures, imperfections. In, in, in lived experience, we may struggle to know kind of where we are. And the even more sensitive amongst us, with a insensitive, very sensitive conscience, this teaching could actually lead them to despair. So let me begin by trying to answer that in some way, by saying, do not get caught up in unhelpful precision, unhelpful precision. What was your name again? Jenny. Supposing I said to Jenny, go to the back of the church. And she went to the back of the church. And I said go to the back to church and she didn't stay here you say well that's clear that's the back of the church this is not but what if Jenny said listen, Robert that's very interesting what particular tuft of carpet does the back of the church start can you be precise please find me the exact moment I'd say we know that's the back of the church this is not you don't have to know the precise point on the carpet and so here when Jesus talks to us he's He's not asking us to have a precise detailed point of knowing in fact trying to be precise about it almost always i think will trip us up in our walk with the lord you need to take a more holistic view step back for a moment you can recognize the back of the church or not without knowing that detail See what that means is tonight, as you listen to me and listen on the um, live stream, you you are, I think, in one of three categories. Each of us here in this room and on the live stream is in one of three categories. First, despite all your anxieties and weaknesses and struggles, and we're going to have a we're going to have a prayer of confession in just a moment for you. (laughs) Nonetheless, you actually are a doer in your own way and not merely a hearer. It has affected your life. You are seeking to live out that life of wholehearted confidence in God and his generosity in your life. And to these, sure, you're aware of your weaknesses and your failings, and these words do come as a bit of a wake up to sort of just check for a moment because they're meant to have that effect, but they also come as something of an encouragement. And, And I say, don't be put off by them. Jesus is not asking for perfection in the sense of no faults. He's not setting an impossible ideal so you can beat yourselves up. No, he's calling for you to have a whole person, wholehearted devotion to God lived out in practice. And if that's where you are, then these words come to you as an encouragement to press on further, to be more attentive, perhaps, more intentional, perhaps, less careless, less lazy, if I could put it that way, in your Christian living. Secondly, you may, however, be that you are conventionally a Christian, possibly quite even instructed in the Christian faith and doctrine, but your heart really isn't in it. If the truth be known, you are a hearer only. You say, Lord, Lord, but you do not do the will of his Father, in heaven. To you, Jesus' words come not as an encouragement, but as a wake up call to repent and get real with God while there's still opportunity. Hearing this sermon might be the best thing that could happen to you. Lastly, you could be neither. It could be that you've not even yet engaged with Jesus. Claims on your lives, your life and the call to flourishing, wise living. To you, then, Jesus' words are a call to engage with him for the first time. To become a disciple of Jesus, that is, a student, that's what disciple means, a learner of him. And if you're not already, to be baptised and begin obeying all that he's commanded you. This sermon, um, I'm going to conclude this sermon with some words that have really impressed me by a guy called Ralph Martin, which I think really puts clearly the point that Jesus is driving at. The last section of my quote in the zine is from it, but the quote itself is slightly longer. Let me read it to you. There are those of us who find God distant, and whatever we might say on a conscious level, prefer Him. To remain distant. There are those of us who find God vague and diffuse and in hidden ways want him to remain that way. When God is vague and distant our following him can be vague and distant and leave us with the experience of a good conscience. When God is close and specific and concrete it calls for a response to him that both allows and demands a more total yielding of our lives in specific ways. A personal God can claim a personal response of me in my most unique and innermost depths. There must be an inevitable moment of crisis when the claims of Jesus become irreconcilable with my style of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you grant us to not merely be hearers of your word through your Son, but to do us also. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.